Thank you for joining us for the Lessons from First Naz podcast. Welcome this morning. It's the second Sunday of a new year. Last week was the first, and I started a new series of teachings that I'm calling A Fresh Life. And we began last week with just how to get one. Everybody at some point in life has that wake-up call where they say, I need a fresh life. Last week, we talked about how to get one, whether you are brand new to Christianity or whether you've been around this whole church, Jesus, God, Christianity thing for a while, but have realized that your faith has grown a little bit bit stale. Last week was all about how to have a fresh life. What you saw at the end of the service was that one person said, count me in, I want a fresh life. And Larry Stuck stood up and he walked to the front. He came right over here and he told us about his faith in Jesus, about his desire for a new life, and was willing to take the step of obedience to the teaching of Jesus and his apostles and we baptized him right on the spot. It was a fantastic day to be here. What you didn't see is that as the sanctuary cleared, uh, little Aubrey Wheelock made her way with her mama to the front right over here and we had a quiet conversation where Aubrey told me all about her faith in Jesus and about how she wants to be forgiven of her sins and wants a fresh new life as well. She wants to be baptized. Aubrey, in a few weeks, we're going to baptize you. We're working on that tank. It's almost ready, girly, okay? I'll let you know. That was fantastic. Then another person who's uh, part of our, our church family around here just said, don't do crowds really well, but I know I need a new start. I need a fresh life, Pastor. And so um, that person and Pastor Bill and I went to my office and we had a long talk and we had a long prayer and we baptized one more. And uh, she knows the power of God's Holy Spirit in her life today. Last week was a fantastic week to be here. Um, Turns out God goes to church here. (laughs) That's a good thing. And he's here with us today. And I want to talk to you a little bit more about this whole idea of fresh life. Today, Specifically, I want to talk about getting a fresh outlook. Two days after Christmas, I stood in Disney's Magic Kingdom with my wife and children. And that was a problem. The problem was not that I didn't want to be there. The problem is that more than 75,000 other people also wanted to be there and in fact showed up. So, well, for the last 15 years, I have lived in states that feature more cattle than people. And I found out that I like that quite a lot. Uh, Crowds and me, (laughs) um, I mean, I'm good with you guys, but you know, you throw in another 74,800, it gets a little congested in here. So as we headed from our hotel that morning toward the park, there was just traffic. It's it's off the Idaho scale, you know what I'm saying? It, uh, it, it, was, it was a lot. It was a lot, a lot. And for some reason, people's worst side came out when they're trying to get to the happiest place on earth. And they, no matter what, had to be three cars in front of me when they get to the magic kingdom. So whatever it took, you know, stepping on the gas, running off the side of the road, whatever, they did it. It was not the enjoyable driving experience that I was looking for. We got out of our car at the parking lot and we made our way with all the other lemmings to the place where the tram picks you up to take you to the gates of the magic kingdom. And everybody's just standing there talking and having a good time until the tram pulls up. And when the tram pulls up, now it's all about position, baby. And so I'm standing there with my beautiful little family and this Chinese tourist standing next to me decides that the fact that I am head and shoulders taller than him 
should not stand in the way of him getting the seat that I was headed for. So he literally just shoved me out of the way and makes his play for the spot. Yeah. I said, right this way, sir. (laughs) I got my seat. Uh, (laughs) Sorry about that. I wasn't wearing my Pastor Cliff name tag, though, so you guys are, are not guilty of it with me. Yeah. Uh, we got on the tram. Um, you know, I haven't been shoved since the last time I played, well, anything with our youth group. You guys shove too, so, right? You guys know, know what it was like. Um, once I got inside the park, we got to the first ride. Like a three-hour wait to ride a roller coaster that I didn't want to get on in the first place. And everywhere that I turned, there were just people that would bump into me, or I was wearing a backpack, and they'd bump into my backpack and turn me, and it just seemed like there were too many people and too little air, and the place just kept getting fuller and fuller. My little sister called me. She was supposed to bring her two daughters, and we were all, you know, have to have this, supposed to have this great day in Disney's Magic Kingdom, but Hillary called me and said, oh, by the way, the place is completely full, so they closed it, and I can't come today. So, Didn't get to spend the day with my sister and with my nieces, but I did get to spend it with 75,000 of my closest friends who, they just kept coming and coming. And they said that Disney closes the gates when 70,000 people go in the front gate. However, they also have resorts attached to the thing and all the resort people get in no matter what, plus about five or 6,000 employees. So the thing just kept getting packed tighter and tighter. And I had this moment when I realized I'm just walking down the street slash sidewalk pavement thing there, and I can feel other people's breath in my face. <laughs> I think I've mentioned to some of you before that I'm a germaphobe. And uh, I, don't think that, I don't think there's a problem with that. I think it's a very good thing to be a germaphobe. Let me just tell you, germaphobes, you will not enjoy Disney anything ever because it is a horrible place for people like us. And... Uh, you know, lines for food, line for the men's bathroom that was like 30 minutes. There are no lines for men's bathrooms. What is wrong with this Disney World place? So, uh, I mean, I had a great vacation, (laughs) but the day at the Magic Kingdom, oh, didn't really like it much. Um, It's because all I could see was the traffic and the selfishness and the shoving and the crowds, and more shoving, and more selfishness, and more crowds, and then all of the germs, and, and it just had me kind of spiraling downward, and I found myself just wanting to say to Lord, get me out of here. I don't care where you take me. Take me to the mall if you have to, but get me out of the place that, as it turns out, is not the happiest place on earth. And there, I mean, I was doing well most of the day, but then there just came this point where I just felt like, you know, it was like it was coming. You know what I mean? By it, I mean it was the, the freak out moment when I couldn't stand this anymore. And somehow, in his goodness, God helped me find just a little place about like this where I walked and there were no people in my personal space. And I got one big deep breath and I let out this long sigh. And that is when God spoke to me. And he helped me to understand something. He pointed out that I had been looking at this day all wrong. See, I didn't need to get out of there. What I needed was a fresh outlook on the situation. 
Instead of seeing all the impositions and inconveniences and intrusions, I needed a fresh outlook on the set of circumstances that I was dealing with. I needed to see the fact that some fraction of that crowd of 75,000 people were children whose wildest dreams were coming true. I needed to see that the rest of the people there were parents and grandparents who were getting to experience what I did when I looked on my kids' faces and listened to their voices as they said, thank you, thank you, again and again and again. And in that moment, my experience, my state of being was transformed and I was good to go for about another 10 minutes, you know, at the... um, When it comes to getting a a fresh life, there's the God part of the equation and there's the human part. You and I can't get a fresh life if God doesn't do some spiritual miracle that cleanses our hearts and begins to change our minds and our thoughts and values about all of life. Neither can we have a fresh life if we're just passive and simply wait for God to sort of magically zap us and to make us better in some mysterious way. Among the things that need to take place in our lives if we're really going to have a thoroughly new and fresh life is that we need to choose a new outlook, a new way of looking at things. Problem is, we're creatures of habit and we have a tendency to choose a certain outlook on life and then just lock in on it. We don't consider other perspectives. We don't look at life from any other different angle. We tend to look at it the same way, always and forever, and that becomes our way of seeing the world and of seeing people and of seeing the circumstances that we face each day. It then shapes our values and our responses. It shapes our our view of people and of the future. And in order for that fresh life that Jesus promised to become a reality in us, we have to allow God to do the thing that only he can do and making our spirits alive, coming and living inside of us. But then we also need to choose a fresh outlook on life, one that is described in the Bible. What I want to do this morning is to help you get a fresh and biblical outlook on the future and on the people around you. I know that life is big and complex. We can't address all of it this morning. But if you had the help of God in getting a new outlook on your future and on the people that you have to deal with each day, I think you'd have a pretty good start on a thoroughly fresh life. The future can be either exciting or frightening. Which is it for you? I met a guy about a dozen years ago. When he introduced himself to me, uh, he asked what I did. I told him, I'm, at that point, I was an associate pastor. I'm an associate pastor. What do you do? I'm a futurist. I didn't know there was such a thing. Uh, I took the bait. I asked, what's a futurist? He said, I get paid to sit around imagining what the future is going to be. I need that job. <laughs> that sounds like fun. <laughs> he said, then I try to help other people see it. And together, we try to make it happen. I decided I'm a futurist too. That as I look at life out in, as I look at life, I have made the decision that I'm going to look at the life out in front of me instead of the life that's behind me. How many of you have enough stuff in the life that's behind you that you'd really rather not look at that again? Okay. I mean, we can't escape every detail of the past, but quite frankly, I've looked at enough of my hurts and wounds and offenses And I'm beginning to dream about this life that's out in front of me and what it may hold. 
I'm done looking at all of the setbacks and wondering if they're permanent. I've decided that the future is an exciting thing and I'm going to look at it. Which is it for you? Exciting or fearful? God was seriously turning Israel's world upside down, that nation in the ancient Middle East. He was taking them from them every vestige of comfort and security and sameness that they had ever had. To them, he sent a prophet. The guy's name was Isaiah. And he sent Isaiah to challenge Israel's chosen outlook on their future with these words. This is what the prophet said God was saying. I am the Lord, your Holy One, Israel's creator, your king. This is what the Lord says. He who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, who drew out the chariots and horses, the army and reinforcements together, and they lay there never to rise again, extinguished, snuffed out like a wick. He's telling the story of Israel's exodus and the incredible, miraculous drowning of the armies of Egypt in the Red Sea. He's saying, that God, that's the one who's speaking to you, and here's what he has to say today. He says... Here's the quote. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I'm making a way in the desert. It streams in the wasteland. And one more time, he was hearkening back to that story in Israel's history where they'd just been chased down by the Egyptian army. They went through the Red Sea like it was dry ground. Pharaoh's army tried to come. Ocean or sea collapsed back on top of them and Israel goes, yay! And then turned around and there's a giant desert with no food or water. He said, don't worry about it. And no roads either. He said, don't worry about it. Because I make a way in the desert and I put streams in the wasteland. I'm going to take care of you. God's doing a new thing. All of the time, God is doing a new thing. The question is, can you see it? Here's a better question, a more important one. Will you look for it? Not can you see it right now? Were you able to see it yesterday? Will you? Will you even look for the new things that God is doing? A follow-up question that is as important. If you dare to look and he shows you, what will you do when you see it? Will you embrace it or will you resist it? Your experience of life as positive and exciting or as negative and something to be resisted will be determined entirely by that one choice that you make. It's a choice to look at change in our world or change in our church through eyes of faith that say that God can be trusted to change things and still be good to us. I have to say that again. It's a choice that you make to decide that God can be trusted to change things and still be good to you? What if your favorite fill-in-the-blank no longer exists in the United States of America? Can you still trust God to be good to you? What if your favorite fill-in-the-blank doesn't exist at First Church of the Nazarene? Can you trust that God can do new things, still be good to you? As we look to the future, the question is, how are we going to look at it? It's a choice to look at change in our world and change in our church through eyes of faith to say that God can be trusted, period. The question is this, can you trust God with the future or do you need to try to control it so you can keep it the same? I'll put more simply yet, will you trust God with the future and with you? The scriptures teach us that we can have a fresh outlook on the future. 
The God is future-oriented. He keeps looking and pressing forward. And he delights in creating and in making new things for you. Do you know what really turns his crank? If he can make a new future with you. If you, if you get on board with God and what his spirit is doing, where he's going, God and you together can have this awesome existence in which you make his dreams for our world come true. He said, I'm doing a new thing. Can, can you perceive it? Let's talk a little bit about something that I think is harder yet, and it's, it's getting a fresh outlook on people. I mean, all of us can at some point say, okay, I don't know what the future holds anyway, and I'm going to end up wherever the future takes me, so I guess I'll get good with it and do this and kind of <laughs> paste a little grin on our face and fake it till we make it, right? It's the business of a fresh outlook on people that is the real challenge in my life and probably in yours. People can be annoying, you may not have noticed, but people can be annoying and hurtful and inconvenient. Or they can be objects of our love, our respect, and our concern. Let me say that again. People can be annoying and hurtful and inconvenient. Or they can be objects of our love, our respect, and our concern. You can look at people as your enemy, or you can look at people as captives of your enemy. See the difference? See, if... if um, KP here is my enemy, I'm in trouble because he's a big guy, right? And if, I, if KP's my enemy, then I'm going to square off against him and I'm going to try to figure a way for me to get the best of him or at least to keep him from getting the best of me. But make, make no mistake about it. If, if you're my enemy, it's me versus KP and KP versus me. However, if I begin to view KP as captive or prisoner of my enemy, he is my friend, my ally. I mean, who is it that my enemy takes captive? Some of my guys. You know how war works, right? Your enemy has a prisoner of war camp. The people who are in the camp, they're your people, right? See, I think Christians, we get this wrong. We look at people who don't share our faith in the world around us, and we think, they're our enemy, no. They're captives of our enemy. They may have been captive for so long that they now act like him, have the same accent, have the same values, do the same things. They're occupying the same side of the line as, as the enemy is. Make no mistake about it. The scriptures say we don't struggle against flesh and blood. They're not our enemies. They're captives of my enemy. We can look at others as the enemy or as captives of our enemy, therefore as our brothers and sisters or allies. The Holy Spirit changed the Apostle Paul's outlook on people because Paul was a guy who thought in terms of us and them. He was a guy who thought in terms of me and my enemy. He once had seen Christians as the enemy, and so he just decided, I will destroy every Christian that I can. Went about arresting people all over the uh, eastern end of the Mediterranean world, got travel documents from the authorities and would go all around the place where until he could find Christians, trump up some charge and arrest them. Wanted to to really just stamp out this whole Christianity thing because he saw Christians as his enemy. But God completely overhauled that view. And once he overhauled Paul's view of Christians, he then overhauled Paul's view on all the rest of the people in the world. And so Paul then penned these words. He said, 
once God does what he does in your life, once he implants his spirit into your heart, once he begins to change your mind and your values, once he gives you that fresh life, he says, from now on, so from now on, we regard no one from an earthly point of view. In other words, we don't think like we once did because most earth dwellers think us and them, me and my enemies. Paul says, from now on, we regard no one from an earthly point of view. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 teaches that when God's spirit comes to live in us, we, some incredible things begin to happen in our relationships with other people. We not only forgive when people hurt us, Not only are we patient with people in their quirks and the things that annoy us, not only do we say, okay, I'm going to just sort of open myself up to relationship with others. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, from now on we regard no one from an earthly point of view. In fact, we go after them, but we go after them to get them, not to get back at them. He says, we go out there as agents of reconciliation. How many of you have a relationship, had a relationship in your past that you valued, but it's over and gone, broken, gone, history. Hmm? Come on. Yeah. Reconcile means that some relationship that you valued and now is shattered is put back together. There are some relationships in my life that I would love to see reconciled. How about you? The scriptures say not only is it possible for me to forgive people who hurt me, who offended me, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says that I become an agent for God, an agent of reconciliation in this world. I help people get reconciled with the God that they have shattered relationship with. It says that I can also be an agent of reconciliation between other people. We can be peacemakers in this world. Hmm. Hmm. Agents of reconciliation. In, that's in Paul's second letter to the church at Corinth, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Um, if you go to his first letter to the church at Corinth, uh, chapter 2, we, we learn about something else. And it's kind of a, a difficult thing to talk about, but you know me. Here we go. When we look at life in this world, when we look at life in this world through a negative lens, and we also look at people that same way, something happens in our hearts. When we allow the negative thought that just a pump pops into our head from who knows where to become the choice that we make about how we view the world around us, how we view the people around us, it begins to bring some negative effects into our lives. We become pretty negative, cynical people who have a tendency to complain a lot. Hmm? Listen, here's a little spiritual principle that you got to remember. If you allow negative thoughts in your heart and your mind, they're going to come out of your yapper. They're going to. If you let all that negativity, cynical, critical, accusatory thinking toward other people and the system, whatever that is, to swirl in your head and your heart, it's going to come right out of your mouth. The scriptures teach it kind of the the opposite direction. They say, whatever comes out of your mouth came out of your heart. So you can kind of use this, this way that you live as a barometer. You can just take a look at how it is that you talk with your friends, your Facebook rants, and whatever. That's me typing on a phone, okay? Um, yeah, I hope somebody got that on video. Um, the scriptures just say that stuff that comes out of you, it came from within you. Let me ask you a question today. Do you need a fresh outlook on people? 
Do you need a fresh outlook on your coworkers, on your stinking kids, your stinking parents, brother-in-law, neighbors, hmm? the man, the rich, the immigrants? Do you need a fresh outlook? Because if you're finding the coming out of your mouth all the time, guess what? It came out of your heart, folks. That's what the scriptures teach us. Hmm. If you find yourself regularly saying, well, I don't mean to be negative, but you didn't mean to. You're just naturally gifted at it. Woo, lucky us. Right? Hmm. Guess what? It doesn't undo it when you just offer as a as a caveat, well, I don't mean to be negative, but turns out I am. Hmm. When we look at life in this world through a negative lens and also look at, at people the same way, we become these, these negative, cynical people who have a tendency to complain a lot. And this is far too common among the Jesus people. This is not what God dreamed when he thought, I'm going to make Cliff. He wasn't hoping that I would go spewing complaints all over everybody all day long. He was hoping that because of the way I ran my mouth, other people would find courage and strength and hope from day to day. And the complaining, cynical, negative, accusatory thing is far too common among the Jesus people. Listen, church, we seriously need to face this reality. We Christians are often the whiniest, complainiest, protestiest people on the planet. Yes, I know that there are some things in this world that need to be held up to the truth of God's light. And when they are evaluated there, they will be found to be lacking. I get that. Is that news to anyone that this world is fallen and broken and not what we wanted it to be? Since when has complaining about the things that we don't like changed it or anyone for the better? The answer is never, and it's never going to. It just doesn't. So how do we, the people of truth, who live in this world of lies and deception and spiritual darkness, make peace with being here and trying to change our world for the better at the same time? Gotta admit, it's complex and more complex than I can explain. In fact, it's what the scriptures call a divine mystery. But I know that it's possible Listen to what the Apostle Paul wrote, the guy who had to deal with every problem church and every problem Christian in the ancient world. You just go and read Paul's letters in the New Testament, the uh, letters to the church at Rome, Corinth, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, uh, two Thessalonians, first and second Thessalonians. Cliff, come on. Read all those letters. And you know what they are? They're they're Paul saying, here's a problem, I'm going to deal with it. Here's another problem in the church, I'm going to deal with it. Here's another problem in the church, I'm going to deal with it. Then when he gets to the end of each of those books, he says, oh, and now I'm going to list the people who are problems. I'm going to deal with them too. Problem person, don't make me show up. Get the point of the letter, because I'm on my way. I'd rather we were friends when I got there. Just read the letters, that's the way it goes. You read the New Testament letters? It's Paul dealing with the problem churches and the problems in the church and the problem people in the church. Now listen to what Paul wrote. This guy had to deal with all of that, all while cutting this, this huge swath in the ancient world, trying to teach people how to live in response to a government that was hostile to their existence and neighbors who discounted their faith. He wrote this, the man without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God for their foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them 
because they're spiritually discerned. The spiritual man makes judgments about all things, but he himself isn't subject to any man's judgment. Now he quotes somebody somewhere from his past. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? Paul then says, well, not me. I know this much. We have the mind of Christ. Let that settle in. If you remember nothing else that I'm trying to teach you today, remember this phrase. We have the mind of Christ. And the mind of Christ was seen in Jesus' life. It was also seen in Paul's life. Seen in both of their lives two ways. First, they boldly, positively faced a future of very rapid change. Life was, you, you, we always talk about how life is in warp drive now, how we think the change is accelerating. Well, guess what? The day you're carrying your cross on a back that has no meat left to it, and it's only a few hundred yards out there to where they are going to ram nails through your feet and shove a spear in your side, all while people spit on you and mock you, and you have to watch your mom crying right there. Trust me, time travels pretty fast. You know what I'm saying? Paul, on the run, but not from the people who are going to hurt him, just on the run to go help God's people all around the ancient world. Felt like there's, there's just not enough time in the day. I got to get there. I got to give them the message. I got to give them the help. I got to straighten out this church before it destroys itself. I got to help this person who's got this rotten attitude get it straight before God has to go, mm, wake up. For everybody, everywhere, all throughout time, it's felt like time was in warp drive. Yeah, I know. There's... Um, computers and things now that spew data faster than, than in the past. But here was Paul. Here was Jesus facing this rapid, rapid change. And what do we see in their lives? They testified to it. Peace, joy, and hope. Hope means I'm positive about the future. Yeah. But we also see it in their lives, in their loving acceptance of people who complicated their lives immensely. So there's these two characters from the New Testament, Jesus and Paul. We see them facing the future positively, even though it was changing rapidly. And we see them dealing with people as though people were valuable and worthy of their love. Paul said, you know how I do it? It's because I'm awesome. No. So you know how I do it? I have the mind of Christ. Oh no. He said, we have the mind of Christ. It wasn't a special gift for Paul that nobody else gets. He said, we have the mind of Christ. Listen to these words from the Apostle Paul. But the kingdom of God is not a matter of food and drink. And in there, he's talking about this big argument, stupid argument that people are having about religious stuff. He said, the kingdom of God is not a matter of arguing about food or drink. It's a matter of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes, he changes your life so that your actions are so radically transformed that people go, I know you, you used to be a dirtbag. You're a good guy. Huh. It's a matter of righteousness and this peace that now you can't, that we can't seem to, to ruffle you anymore. And no matter what's happening, you still have this sense that it's going to be okay and you're, you're happy about it and you're positive about your future. Paul said, it's not about all this stuff that causes arguments, causes tension, causes stress in your life kingdom of God is about righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. By the way, the Holy Spirit's available to you too. Holy Spirit 
and the mind of Christ. Hmm. We might get a new you out of this if we keep pursuing this. We need a fresh outlook on people. We need a fresh outlook on our trying circumstances. And here's what I got to tell you. All you got to do is ask. Some of you don't even need to ask. Some of you have the mind of Christ, you just don't know it. You've held on to that old thinker of yours, that old evaluator of yours. When you accepted the Spirit of God to come live inside of you, he brought with him everything he's got, including the mind of Christ. We get our heads down. We look at people and situations a certain way, a way that's either taught to us, maybe your parents were really negative people, or that we kind of sink into under the weight of pain and worries and the stress of life in this world. If we're honest, this world and those of us who live in it tend to get kind of negative, critical, and biting. This was never God's dream for us. Do you know what God has always wanted for you? Listen to these words from the Apostle Paul. Kingdom of God is not a matter of all this arguing and tension. It's a matter of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. The fresh life that God offers us is one that requires a fresh outlook. But that's something you have to choose. When you, when you invite the Holy Spirit to come live in your life, you get everything he's got, including the mind of Christ. But you are going to have to choose to use it. To adopt the outlook of Christ himself on this world, on the future, and on the people around us. That outlook is to be chosen and then informed by God's written word to us. and By his Holy Spirit within us. His word teaches us that God is doing a new thing. That we should look for the new things that he does and embrace them. It teaches us that when we've received this fresh life from him, we should choose to change the way that we look at people, both ourselves and others. And it teaches us that we have the mind of Christ and should ask God to fully form that mind in us. Haven't you often thought, well, man, if I just had the wisdom of God, I'd do a whole lot better in this life. Yeah, uh (laughs) uh-huh. Guess what? You have the mind of Christ. Do you see the new thing God's doing? Can you perceive it? Or are you resisting the future and its inevitable change? Do you regard people as you always have or with a love that is like that of God and Jesus themselves? Do you have and use the mind of Christ? You have the mind of Christ. You do. But you may not have realized it yet. If you're a follower of Jesus, then newsflash for you. You have the mind of Christ. And His Holy Spirit who lives in you comes and brings the ability for you to think and value and appreciate like God does. And that, my friends, will change you from the inside out. You can look at the future without fear because you know that God's out there and He's in it. And that He has a plan for you that He's always always been creating and is already bringing about. And, And you can look at other people differently than you used to as well. Your judgmentalism can be replaced with compassion. Your prejudice can be replaced with acceptance. Your anger and bitterness can be replaced with forgiveness. You have the mind of Christ now, and it means that you can have a whole new outlook on life. You can. If you've received God's Spirit to live in you, you can. 
If you want God's life to well up in you and to change your experience of life in this world, you can. You're going to need a fresh outlook on this life, and that comes from adopting the mind of Christ. I'm going to ask the worship team to come. I'm going to play and sing a song for you. And uh, the song, however, is not the point. This is prayer time. If in the process of reading God's word and then my comments on it today, something happened in your heart where you realized, oh, I'd kind of sunk into that negativity thing. I'd been worrying about the future instead of trusting God with it and with me. If you become the, the person who constantly sees other people's flaws and imperfections, and you find yourself just having to talk about it, friend, it's time for some change in your life. And that change is possible because of the Holy Spirit who comes to live in people and because he brings everything he's got with him, including the mind of Christ. So here's the deal that everybody needs to understand. In this church, it is okay to pray. In this church, it's okay to act, I'll put it this way, you don't have to act like you've got it all together to be here, okay? Because we know you don't. Some of you don't even fake it good, okay? You're not, you're not nearly as good at putting on airs as you think you are. We see that you're like us. You have faults and weaknesses. You're broken. These altars were put in here not so they would remain pretty furniture. We didn't need another stick of lumber in here. They were put in here so that people could come. I don't know why, but it works. When people kneel to pray, it's like all the pride goes out the window. All the excuses go out the window. Just know this. In this church, we already know that we're broken, busted up people. Altars are where broken people find solace and comfort. It's also where they take some things that are weighing on their hearts and they throw them down and they say, I'm never going to pick them up again. God, that's yours from here forward. You don't have to pretend any longer that you got it all together. If today the Holy Spirit was tapping you on the shoulder saying, I would like for you to have a conversation with me about fresh outlook. And I want to invite you to come um, and just pray while we sing this song that asks God to help us have an outlook like his own. You can stand, you can sit, you can kneel, whatever it is that you need to do to have a conversation with the Lord today. Just ask that you would uh, at some point close your eyes and ask the Lord to speak to you and give him permission to do exactly that. Then you just do what he tells you to do. He wants you to sit, stand, run, jump up and down, do jumping jacks. I don't care. You just listen to the voice of God and do what he tells you to do.